Well, good morning. Welcome to Central. Glad that you're here. I want to say thank you to you, Pastor Lynn, for uh, jumping up last week. I think I texted him at about 7 o'clock last week and said, Lynn, for the first time in my 32-year ministry career, I'm too sick to speak. And I really was. I was let out flat. This COVID thing knocked me flat. The funny thing with this is if I ever speak on a haughty spirit, I've got a great story for it. COVID has been through our house at least twice. Never got it. Thought I was immune you know, too in touch with God or whatever else it was in four days before I'm supposed to go on sabbatical with my family, that's when I get it and it hit me. And it's as if God's saying, don't do that, don't do that. Uh, but Lynn, I appreciate you stepping up and uh, thank you for doing that. And also for Corey today, rearranging his two-parter into a one-part so that I could just come and share what God's laid on my heart for this series. If you have a Bible, jump to Matthew chapter 17, Matthew chapter 17. And uh, the message title today is the right people at the right place for the right training. God was hooking the right people for the right place uh, to the right place for the right training. Matthew chapter 17. One of the most bizarre miracles, I think, that Jesus ever performed, this one. Um, It's a nature miracle, but it's weird. But there's a reason why it's weird, and we often miss it. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to read from verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, hold on to that place, the collectors of the true drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, does your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children? Or for others, from others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause any offense, go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first bit you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. What a weird story. Yeah, I mean, the disciples are fishermen, right? They, they know how to fish, but they don't typically fish with a line. They fish with a net. If we did a Greek study, we'd see that James and John had a better net than Peter and Andrew, telling us that James and John actually came from higher socioeconomic circles than uh, Peter and Andrew did. But it's none of this. It's just a line. Uh, the disciples knew what it was like to fish and not catch anything. But in this instant, Jesus demonstrates his lordship over nature is also his lordship over pagan gods because the coin would have had a pagan image on it. Um, and, and in one kind of, one kind of, uh, kind of cast of the, of the line, everything was taken care of. It's just a, an incredible story. Now, the key thing I want to draw attention to in this message is not so much all of the subtleties of this, but I want you to know where it happened. It happened in Capernaum, in Capernaum. Capernaum is located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can see that picture right there. Now, the Gospels mention Capernaum 16 times, second only to the city of Jerusalem in its number of mentions. Capernaum was a bustling city. It was a place where uh, archaeologists have discovered lots of tools. They think it may well have been a manufacturing center. It was also a, a, a lush farming area. But the key thing we know it for is for its excellent fishing. How many of you like to fish? Any of you like to fish? How many of you have ever gone out fishing and caught nothing? 
Every time we go on spring break, Jordan, my 16-year-old, takes my wife on a charter trip. They went this year, Alec, who's playing the drums, he went, Jonas went, um, Jaden went. They all went all day and didn't catch a thing. Didn't catch a thing. I found that really funny. They didn't, but they didn't catch a thing. The key thing with fishing, of course, is um, you do it in the right place, right? Because the fish are a certain place, and if you're fishing where the fish ain't, you ain't going to catch anything. Well, any of you know what that is? It's kind of a GPS fish finder, right? It's a GPS with a fish finder. This actually goes on my jet skis. I got two jet skis. I don't know why Pastelin drives a motorbike, but I do know now because I like jet skis more than boats. Well, Jordan was like, if you're going to have a jet ski, you've got to put one of these things on it because i got a fish from it. So I, I got one of these things. Now, the point of this thing, the value of it, is not so much in directing me on where to go. It's in being able to plot every time we catch a fish. Now, if you want to know what that's like, you can have a look at this. This is Bill Matman's GPS on his boat. Bill was with us, and we went out fishing. By the way, when we went out fishing, somebody looked at the size of fish I caught and asked if I was going to put it back in the aquarium. That's how big mine was. You could tell I've not got the fisher fingers, right? It was, it was just too small. But th these little red X's are basically on Lake Michigan. Every time Bill Matman was in a place and he caught more than two fish, X marks the spot. Why did he mark the spot? He marked the spot because when you're fishing, location matters. When you're fishing, location matters. Now, it's, it's not just a recent technology thing where we track locations. It's also an older technology thing. These are some waypoint books that uh, Bill has way before the technology era where they would basically just mark down the coordinates so wherever they would find more than one fish, right? Uh, more than two fish, rather. He would just log it down in here so he would know where he needed to go in order to catch fish. The, the point is clear. Fishermen know that location matters. If you're going to start a retail business, for example, you know that the key thing is location, location, location. It's the same thing with fishing. If you're going to be successful at fishing, then you basically need to know where the fish are. In the story in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus demonstrates his lordship over nature because he clearly knows where the right fish is. But there's something about Capernaum and there's something about this story, where it's located, that shows the end of a certain type of fishing expedition that Jesus was doing for the first 17 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. It is that, that season is coming to a close, and now he's turning his eyes towards Jerusalem. The location of Capernaum is really, really important. And the reason this jumped out at me and the reason I wanted to share this is because I believe that there are certain truths in the season that we're in, we need to recognize the location where God has us, where God has placed us, in the time that God has placed us in, it's really important to learn the lessons of Capernaum. Location matters. If location matters, the obvious question is, does the Capernaum location matter as well? I want to suggest to you it does. 
And I want to suggest to you that we can learn some important lessons about what we need to be doing as the people of God as we navigate our way into the future that God is calling us to. And especially in the social political context of our nation right now, especially as we navigate our way towards November. November's important, but how we go fishing in light of everything is important too. Location matters, and the location teaches us that if the right people are to do the right thing, they get the right results. Does Capernaum matter? Yes, it does. Have a look at Matthew chapter 4. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, and so he withdrew to Galilee. Please notice this. Jesus waited to go public in his ministry until after John had been put in prison. Why? The simple solution to this is because John had a different view of the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom to Jesus. John had basically a two-stage understanding of the kingdom. The Messiah would come, and then the kingdom would come. And Jesus believed in there being a delay. The Messiah would come. The kingdom would be inaugurated, but there would be a delay, and it would be fully come when the Messiah comes again. So to avoid this conclusion, Jesus doesn't actually go into ministry, Matthew tells us, until after John has been put in prison. And then something happens. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Notice that Matthew is using the Old Testament geographical references here to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Why did Jesus go to Capernaum? Because that's where God wanted him to fish. God wanted Jesus to leave the conservative stronghold of Nazareth that had nearly killed him, Luke chapter 4, for simply reading the scriptures because his work and his ministry must begin in the area of the northern Galilee, specifically in Capernaum itself. Let's read why. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And it was from that time on that Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So what did the scriptures teach? The scriptures teach that Jesus was led by the Spirit to leave the conservative town of Nazareth and go to this bustling, diverse place called Capernaum. This was necessary to fulfill what was said through the prophet. The location matters. See, Capernaum is no coincidence. There's a backstory here. This backstory begins in 733 BC with the Assyrian king Tiglath Pileser III, who for two years sought to invade the land of God's people. 
he initially conquered the northern part of the country, particularly the upper regions of the Galilee. This area was a strategic target due to its position along the main trade route connecting Egypt all the way to Mesopotamia. The access to that trade route and the geographical, the topological layout of the Capernaum area made it a great target, but it also made it very, very vulnerable. Now, notice that Matthew quotes the Old Testament terminology. This is what it was like back then. So, with that trade route connecting Egypt through Mesopotamia, there came an awful lot of opportunity, but also an awful lot of influences. It was a great place in one way because with the, with the wealth that came in, people could live a higher lifestyle. But it was also a hard place in another way because of all the influences that crept in. So you have wealth that came in and you have outside influences that crept in. And so the challenge that God's people always had in this particular area of their land was how do they make the most of the opportunity that the influx of people, the influx of skills, the influx of wealth actually gives while staying true to the covenant that God had called them to live by. Now the reality is, God's people had always been called to be a light to the nations. And this particular geographic area gave them the opportunity to set a platform that would allow their light to shine to the nations. This area gave them an opportunity to minister, to witness to all of the people who would come in to do trade and then go home sharing their experiences with them. Sadly, God's people made more use of the foreign influence than they ever did of the hope of the covenant. And as a result of that, they did not remain faithful to what God was saying. And by referring to the prophet Isaiah, Matthew recognizes the pain that these people experienced. You see, these people through their unfaithfulness, were the first people to go into exile. But recognizing that, Matthew says they will be the first people to ultimately experience the hope that will come through the Messiah. Because in this people, in this land, those living in the shadow of death would see the light dawn first. One day, God would forgive and restore his people. Jesus left that conservative stronghold of Nazareth because it was the wrong place to start a new work. Have you ever noticed that? It is very difficult to start a new work in a conservative stronghold. Friends, Holland is a conservative stronghold. Is it going to be difficult for God to do a new work? In this place? This is the backdrop to this story that we often overlook. You see, by placing himself on the international road, accessible but vulnerable, 
Jesus was making himself available to all people. And Jesus' location, relocation, is a move away from a conservative bastion of Nazareth, which nearly killed him, to an area where people would be more open to his message. And as Jesus ministered in that area of Capernaum, what happened? People flocked to him. What motivated them? Matthew 8 and 9 tell us his miracles, the wonders that he was doing. There were these broken, hurting, desperate people coming in to do trade. They met Jesus and they go home whole. They became this PR campaign for Jesus that basically meant the numbers of people coming into that area solely to meet Jesus was growing and growing and growing. Amazed by Jesus, they returned home and they told their story wherever they went. Now, does that mean that everything was great in Capernaum? No. See, that place was a melting pot of ideas. It always had been. It was a hard place to be. And despite his impact, Jesus had a lot of opposition there too. Why? Because recognizing Capernaum to be this outpost, this melting pot of ideas, the religious leaders of Jerusalem made sure that there was that religious stronghold in Capernaum as well. They sent their emissaries there to collect the temple tax. This is the story that we read in Matthew chapter 17. And over and over again in this region, Jesus is being embraced by people who need hope and life, and he's being confronted by people who wanted things to stay the way it was. That's why in this very place called Capernaum, we read this in Matthew chapter 11. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is not talking about the people who were responding to him. He's talking about that religious stronghold that would not. See, God was doing a new work through Jesus. But it's very hard for people steeped in history and tradition to embrace a new work. What I find fascinating in all of this is this is where Jesus calls his disciples. If you're going to call people to build a new movement, you would have thought that he would have gone to the place that actually produced the best thinkers, fully aware, fully steeped in the detailed knowledge of what this work would be. But he doesn't do that. We read this here, Matthew 4. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Jesus calls fringe people <laughs> to be the foundation for a ministry that was going to change people's lives. To many of us, that makes little sense. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Lynn and I, with uh, Travis, were able to go over to the West Coast. We were visiting the Portland and Vancouver, Washington area. And while we were there, we actually saw a number of signs and parks for the Lewis and Clark, uh, you know, the Lewis and Clark uh, parks. 
And that reminded me of, of the story. Do you remember what happened when Lewis and Clark, looking for a waterway through to the Pacific, actually came to the Rockies? Do you remember what they did? They just realized that they couldn't climb the Rockies in a canoe. But they also recognized that this was such new territory for them that they had no skills to actually navigate it. You probably know the story better than me. Do you remember who navigated them through the Rockies? A Native American female. A fringe person on society was the best equipped person to lead these gifted, qualified people into an area that they've never gone before. Friends, do you realize the people who are going to be most equipped to lead the church into the emerging America are probably in this church right now. Maybe you and you're sitting on the fringe because you don't think you fit. These men did not fit the profile of, of leaders in a movement of the day but they were exactly who Jesus needed because these were the people who were very comfortable living in a fringe place like Capernaum. Let me ask you, how comfortable are you living in the America that you may not like? How comfortable are we living in an America that is very different to the one we grew up in? If we want to see a work of God, we need to recognize that location matters. We need to recognize that God hasn't lost control of a nation when it becomes more diverse. And we also need to recognize that when God places people in times like these, then what he's going to do is he is going to work in our own lives in the way he worked in the disciples' lives to equip them for the very service that he was calling them to fulfill. This is the point of the Capernaum narrative. From Matthew chapter 4 through Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, uh, 27. Through this entire section, Jesus is taking these fringe leaders and he's equipping them to minister in a world that is going to be very different from the one that they were used to. Let me tell you this, if you're in a church like this and you wonder whether you fit, maybe where God is leading us, you fit better than you think. And maybe if you're uncomfortable sometimes in church with changes, maybe what God needs to do in you is what God needed to do in an awful lot of people. He needed to change their mind. That's why I love this, this gospel of Matthew. There's so much in this story. And so what we recognize in the way that the story in Matthew develops is the skills that these disciples would need to fish for the world could be learned in Capernaum. Capernaum not only accelerated Christ's fame, it actually honed the disciples' skills. Where you fish matters. So here's the question, right? What skills did the disciples need to learn in order to become fishers of man? What skills do they need to learn? What skills do we need to learn in order to fish in the increasingly diverse America that we live in? Because that's what happens in the rest of the story through until chapter 17, verse 27. And the miracle that we read actually closes this section of the text. And Peter, right there and then, is confronted with the realization that God is going to do something that Peter would never have expected. So what skills? 
as is typical the case for me, I'm probably not going to get through all three, so I'm going to say all three right now, and if I don't, at least, you've, at least you know them. As we look at the emergence of this story, the development of the story, in Matthew we see it going like this. He calls the disciples in four and five, uh, in four, five, six, and seven, he gives his first discourse. There are five discourses in Matthew's gospel, five teaching sections, five teaching books in a sense, showing Jesus to be the new Moses, copying after the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old, of the Old Testament. So that's five, six, and seven. Eight and nine, that's when all the miracles are happening. Chapter 10, that's what he calls these disciples to him, and he says, okay, you've seen me do this, now you're going to go do this. What's interesting in Matthew's gospel is that the disciples never return. The disciples are still out on mission. In Luke's gospel, the disciples come back and say, wow, Jesus, this is amazing. Even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus says, don't rejoice that the demons submit to, to you. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. But in Matthew, they don't come back. They're still out there. 11 and 12, things are starting to get tense in Capernaum. In chapter 13, we have that third discourse. Chapter 10 is the second one, that third discourse. And, and this training block that I'm talking about takes place from the end of chapter 13, which happens as Jesus says, do you understand everything I'm telling you? And the disciples foolishly say yes. They foolishly say yes. And over the next few chapters through until chapter 7, Jesus shows that they don't know as much as they think. Could I suggest to us that maybe God wants us to realize that maybe we don't know as much as we think? And it's in this section at the end of chapter 13 through until the end of chapter 17 that we have three lessons that they learn. The first one is this, insight into who Jesus is. They, they recognize that as much as they know, they need deeper insight into who Jesus is if they're to be successful in completing their mission deepen their insight into who Jesus is. Secondly, Jesus wanted them to realize that they needed to embrace their role as mediators between God and the people, not agitators between God and the people. Some of us need to hold on to that. We're agitators, not mediators. Friends, this battle in November is going to be serious. And fortunately, many of us are going to be more like agitators than we are mediators. We need to learn this lesson now before we get too close to November. God calls his people to be mediators, not agitators. This is the significance of the end of the miracle story in Matthew chapter 17. Hey, Peter, does your rabbi pay the temple tax? Yeah, of course he does. And then Jesus waits for Peter to come into the house. And he says, Peter, what on earth are you saying? Tell me, do the, do the sons of the king actually pay the tax? Pay taxes? No. What about the, the sons of the sons? No. Then neither do I. But so that we do not offend them. Tell me, was Jesus okay offending religious leaders? Yeah, he did it all the time. Read Matthew chapter 23, discourse number 5. 
But why didn't he want to offend them then? Because his time to offend them had not come. You see, sometimes, folks, we need to recognize that we don't need to fight every battle and say every word today. Sometimes we can leave it until tomorrow. But Peter here sided with the religious establishment, and there was no way that Jesus wanted anything to do with the way that ministry was being done in the temple. And it was because he changed the way that ministry was being done in the temple that they ultimately put him to death. Jesus here was an agitator, not a mediator, and Peter needed to know from Jesus that Jesus wanted nothing to do with it. Friends, if we're going to fish for souls in this season, in a diverse America where opinions are all over the shop and they do not honor God, we need to learn to be mediators, not agitators. Lesson number two. Lesson number three. They're going to learn that their compassion for people had to grow. See, the problem with Peter's answer was that he was reinforcing a standard of holiness that ultimately meant that you could only get into the temple if you were whole. Blind people couldn't get into the temple, not into the parts that mattered. And yet in Matthew's gospel, the ones who see Jesus more clearly than anyone else are the ones who physically cannot see at all. The message of Jerusalem that they were trying to export into the, into the northern Galilee was that in order to uh, enter the temple, you had to be whole, holy lifestyle. And basically the whole idea was this, what our manifesto is, we need to be holy, not just for one hour a week, we need to be holy seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And they exported this message of get yourself right before you come in. And Jesus wanted nothing to do with it. What was he doing in the Galilee? He was making people right so that they'd want to come in. This gathering wasn't about being put right. It was ultimately about worshiping the one who'd put them right. The disciples needed to realize that what Jesus was doing was based not simply on power, but was based on love. And so we have these lessons coming up in in this section of the text from the end of chapter 13 through chapter 17. And I want to run through this. And if you love the scriptures, I'd encourage you this week, just go and meditate on this yourself. So there are three skills, right? Three skills. I'm going to probably only be able to focus on one of them, and that's this, insight, okay? You got mediation. They've actually moved it around for me. And compassion. There you go. These guys are good. They moved it around so I did in the first service, and they helped us. But here's the point. At the end of chapter 13 through until chapter 17, we have what is called unique Peter material. There are three episodes in there that is unique to Matthew about Peter. The first one is Matthew 13. We're used to this one. Peter walks on water, right? The second one is when Peter ultimately confesses Christ, and Jesus actually gives a beatitude. He gives a blessing to Peter. Peter said, Jesus, I know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus blesses him. He says, Peter, blessed are you because this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by the Father who is in heaven. Unique Peter material. Thirdly, it's this temple tax passage. Now, what's interesting is that in all of these stories, the disciples are portrayed as mediators in some kind, in some way. So in the first story, everybody's in the boat, scared stiff, storm's going on, we're going to drown. 
look out there, hey, is that a ghost or is it Jesus? Jesus says, hey, it's me. Peter says, if that's really you, then I'll walk on the water to you. And so he goes, and Peter is this mediator between uh, Jesus and the disciples. In, in the second section here, we have the parable of the feeding of the, uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. In this story, Jesus has been talking too long. It's the end of the day. Everybody's hungry. And, and the disciples kind of come to him. And I'd love to have been fly on the wall with this, right? And it would have been, hey, Jesus, you've been going a long time. These people need to go get some food. You remember what Jesus says? You give them something to eat. <laughs> what? <laughs> how are we going to do that? And you know the story, Andrew is the only one with courage and he said, Jesus, the only thing we got here is a, a little boy with a couple of pieces of bread and a few fish. There they are again, mediating between Jesus and the people. And in the third story, we've already looked at this, it's exactly the same thing. Peter is mediating between Jesus and these religious people. Now what we have here is that in each of these passages, this is what the insight they needed. They needed insight into the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. In the first story, the disciples see Jesus walking on the water. The disciples see Peter sinking, Jesus extending the hand to him, lifting him up, and the passage ends with the disciples in the boat saying, surely this man is the Son of God. In the second story, Peter confesses it. In the third story, Jesus emphasizes it. This is the insight people need. I'm going to build this up in a second. Now, there's something else happens in each of these three accounts. In each of these three stories, the disciples manifest little faith. And there's a lot of conversation about what does it mean to have little faith? Little faith is connected to who Jesus truly is and whether you see it. Little faith is actually to do with, do we see Jesus for who he truly is? And in each of these stories, the disciples don't understand Jesus for who he truly is. And something invariably goes wrong. In the first one, Peter sinks. In the second one, when the, the, the kind of challenge is too big for them, they don't know what to do. In the third one, Peter just opens his mouth and thinks that God isn't going to do a new thing. He's just going to continue with the old thing. In, in all of these things, they do the wrong thing because they do not understand who Jesus is. Let me ask you this. How many times... Have you done the wrong thing because you have failed to recognize who Jesus is? Let's go a stage further, shall we? Jesus is calling us to be fishers of people. Do you think it's true or not that our passion for sharing the gospel with lost people becomes stronger if we know who Jesus is? Could it be the fact that we're not passionate about this is because we really haven't grown in our understanding of who Jesus is? See, Peter didn't know who, uh, didn't keep his eyes on, on Jesus, and when the storms overwhelmed him, he sank. Do you realize that when the storms come, you don't have to do anything to sink other than not look to Jesus? Do you realize looking to Jesus takes more work than looking at storms? Think about that for a second. Now, I love you guys, 
but I would much rather be in Paris with my family right now. Seeing all of these photos of them going, you know, the Eiffel Tower, okay, I've been there before, but we've got adopted kids. We're taking them back over. It's like a mini break for us, mini sabbatical. We planned this thing for years, and I get COVID, and I can't go. And I'm ticked. I'm ticked. And I see all of these photos coming in, and I'm like, I'm not going to look at this phone. <laughs> Wait a minute. All of a sudden, COVID becomes bigger than the purposes of God, and I'm, I, I'm preparing to do this message. Storms come. Do you realize that all we need to do to sink is to stop looking at Jesus? <laughs> it's the most natural thing in the world to sink. If you want to do a study on this, go read the book of Proverbs and notice how it's very easy to slide into folly and how it's very difficult to live wisely. All we need to do to mess up is nothing. Isn't that what Thomas did? <laughs> Sat in his butt when Peter and John ran to the disciples. He said, I'm not doing anything. So the disciples get it wrong. Peter gets it wrong. He looks at the storm. He sinks. In the second one, they're confronted with circumstances that they simply haven't got the resources to be able to deal with. In the third one, Peter makes an assumption. But what's interesting is every time they get it wrong, Jesus extends a hand in one way or another. Do you know that Jesus delights in saving those people with little faith? Do you know that Jesus delights in actually changing your mind about him when the storms of life, the challenges that you're facing, uh, the kind of the pressure that religious people have put on you to agitate rather than mediate well up inside you. Do you know that Jesus doesn't, doesn't kind of look at you and get angry with you? He doesn't clench his fist at you. He just extends a hand to you. And he says, all you need to do is look at me. Deepen your insight of me. What's amazing in all of this is to be successful fishers, the disciples needed greater insight into who Jesus was. Let me bring this home. I think we're going into a very critical season in Michigan. Roe versus Wade is going to be a huge deal. And let me just say this, I believe what God wants for his people is not for us to live in a state where abortion is impossible, but to live in a state where it's unthinkable. If you want to live in a state where something is impossible, you will use every legal means to make sure that people cannot do something. If you want to live in a state where something is unthinkable, you will ultimately work as hard as you can, do all you can for people to see the wisdom and the light that actually comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we approach what is coming up over the next few months, trying to make things impossible, we will have embraced roles as agitators, not as mediators. And how dare we do that? Friends, it is time for you and I to deepen our insight into who Jesus truly is. That's the only solution for the challenges that we face. And more than that, we need to recognize that when we talk to people, 
we talk to people with the love of Jesus. When Jesus saw broken, hurting people, he healed them. He didn't wait for them to become whole and then invite them in. He invited them to him and then made them whole. This is what Peter got wrong in the story. See, the reason Jesus didn't want to pay this temple tax is because he did not want to be associated with the abuses that actually came from the temple. But at the same time, he knew his time had not come. So this miracle is there to buy Jesus' time and ultimately to teach people a lesson. And if you know the rest of the story, you know exactly what happens. Jesus would get to Jerusalem. He would go into the temple. He would clear out those money changes. He would get rid of the abuses. He would actually bring God's justice right there and right then. And the next thing he would do is he would welcome the blind and the lame, those people who were not allowed in until they got themselves cleaned up. He invited them in and he healed them. And then afterwards they say, how dare you do that? We think that they put Jesus to death because they did not understand him. Friends, I want you to know that the religious people put Jesus to death because they understood him only too well. To be offering a means of access to God that had nothing to do with the holy place, but had everything to do with the holy person and an incredible act of love. And if you remember what Jesus did on the cross, while the nails were in his hands and the nails were in his feet, People were obeying him. If you truly are omnipotent, if you truly can do all of these things, then save yourself. But what we see on the cross is not a manifestation of omnipotent power in the expression of Jesus. What we see on the cross is a manifestation of omnipotent love. Jesus looks at all of these people and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friends, I think we're in a season where if we put the word omnipotent together with every, anything else, we put it together with love, not power. Power is often abused in religious circles. But the power of God never is abused because the power of God is always manifest through perfect love. I really believe that in the season, as confusing as it may be, God has positioning his church for a new work that he is doing and what he wants us to do is to look to him, the one who can bring all things to peace. If I ask the team to come back, they're gonna sing a song, Tremble, and I just pray that as we sing this, something in your soul will start to tremble before the one who has done something great. He has made it possible for you to have a relationship with God, not on the basis of anything that you have done, but on the basis of what he has done. And I pray that this week you would just grow in your relationship with Jesus. When you feel overwhelmed because the storms are rising, realize it will take you nothing to sink, but it will take every bit of power that you have to look at Jesus. If you feel overwhelmed because the challenges are simply too much and you don't know how you're going to do it, you know what the solution is? Look to Jesus. And if you start to find yourself getting involved like Peter was in all of these religious controversial conversations, then just realize the wisest thing to do is not necessarily to agree with the religious power brokers, but to look to Jesus. Say, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Because God has a, pers a purpose for his church, for all of us. He wants to make us fishers of people. And we can only do that by falling more in love with Jesus.
Stand with me as we pray. Oh God, we we just thank you that you call outsiders and make them insiders. Not because of anything we've done, but because of the finished work of Jesus. Father, we thank you that when we manifest little faith, either because the storms seem too big, the challenges seem too great, or the conversation's too loud, we thank you that you reach your hand to us when we look to you. Father, we pray that you would do that for those right now who are struggling in storms with challenges, even in conflict. God, I pray that you would just reveal Jesus to them in a powerful way. And Father, I just pray that you would make those storms cease. And God, as your people, I pray that you would help us to fall more in love with you. Father, I pray that you would just reveal Jesus to us afresh. Father, may we as your people be willing to embrace our role as ambassadors, mediators between the people out there and the God that we know and love. Help us to be wise as we do that. May you do a powerful work in our hearts in Jesus' name.